Just one uh, comment on some of the discussion that occurred earlier about uh, commemorations and so forth. We've talked about penances and something and so forth, and this, it does relate to that. A person who is excommunicated is not allowed, you cannot receive his offering. He cannot be commemorated, nor can he offer the prosphora. Now, by excommunicated, remember, this is someone who is unrepentant, does not wish, and rebels. And he is cut off until such time, and for the purpose of inducing him to repent. However, a person who is under penance, he, their offerings can be received, or certainly those which are made on their behalf can be received, and they can be and should be remembered. In fact, it is particularly uh, important that you remember that person. Remember, your prayers are what are sustaining that person. So that is a very, very important part of it, and it is important that anyone who is under penance know that he or she is being lovingly cared for and given special consideration and in fact enjoys with you a more intimate and uh, more caring relationship than would be perhaps otherwise the case. This is therapy, it isn't torture. The person is also allowed to drink from the epiphany water. Uh, say if you want sometime maybe I can uh, put together a little article and make it available for you to be printed uh, on the different waters. You mentioned that, so people will understand what I'm talking about. The Epiphany water, if they would come to you on major feast days, or you can do it once a month, quietly after the liturgy, after other people have gone so nobody sees, and they would, you would give them then to drink, if you have like a little, like often if you have a cup that you use for weddings, have a little bit, and they drink from that in three swallows, praying, so that they're not completely cut off from the life of the church. They are also given andidoron. By that, I mean andidoron is not to be passed out to everyone. Not, I'm talking not necessarily about what goes on. I'm talking about what is the ideal. But you should be aware of that, and don't say it's irrelevant and therefore of no bearing whatsoever, because it is done elsewhere but they are to be able to receive that so that there are ways in which they have communion with the church even though they do not have and in, do not enjoy the communion of the body and blood of Christ. The water from Epiphany is to be specially reserved. And in Hagia Sophia, it was reserved in the altar. In fact, the water was actually consecrated on the altar itself, not in the middle of the church. It was consecrated on the holy table itself and there was a special section. The Russian pilgrims all mentioned being able to see it. Remember, in Hagia Sophia, there was no closed iconostas. It was the, the wall with the pillars and the architrave and open, so you could see inside, and it could be seen very definitely. So it's definitely what is to be treated with great reverence and must be drunk fasting. If they're going to receive, they must be fasting. The, the water from Epiphany cannot be drunk without fasting. It's important to remember. Yes? Oh, 
I think we need to re deal with that much more. What, what are you talking about by that? Uh, essentially, excommunicate. Yes, technically. But I would say when we're dealing with someone who really has committed mainly a major sin and is totally unrepentant for it, if you want to be exact, yes, someone who has married without and is therefore by his, his or her divorce automatically cut off from the church. But the main intention of this is for someone who is totally unrepentant and perhaps someone who is causing scandal. In other words, someone who is living in an open and flagrant relationship which is known to one and all and not just quiet gossip but is very flagrant about it is totally unrepentant. In that case, you, you really do apply it. Not only for his benefit, but in that case for everybody else's as well. Okay, now, Father Timothy, would you do me a favor and would you open the New Testament to Romans 12, 3 through 8? Uh, wait, wait, wait one moment. We, I would have you open it first to Galatians 3, 27, 29. Keep your finger in Romans. <laughs> 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, this is, again, we must always remember that any discussion of priesthood which does, is not rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is not rooted in his priesthood, and in the fact that we only have any right to it at any degree insofar as we have put on Christ and are part of him is really a very wrong-headed way of approaching the entire issue and will result in disaster. So this is the starting point of any discussion of priesthood and the end point. And that is that we are the body of Christ. Father Timothy, Romans 12, 3 through 8. 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I bid every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if serving in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We have introduced, for our discussion anyway, the concept of the body of Christ of which we are a part. You hear, especially used to hear a lot of the Roman Catholics talking about the mystical body of Christ. I always wondered what mystical meant. 
It's the real body of Christ. What do you mean by mystical? It's not hidden. Well, it's hidden in that it's not, we're not conjoined to one another. <laughs> but it is, uh, it's very, very real. And our flesh is his flesh in a very real sense, or is becoming at any rate. So, but this does not mean it's happy anarchy and happy communism within the body of Christ. As in any body, there are, is a differentiation of function within the body of Christ. I was uh, speaking at, in uh, New England at a, a retreat for the ladies, the Antiochian women. And this woman, it wasn't on this subject, it was on a very different one. And this woman, obviously a feminist, got up and said, well, is it not true that the image of the church is the Holy Trinity? Now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God equal, therefore we are all God, you know. It's, and I, first of all, I should have said, which I didn't, is that you won't find a precedent for using that particular image of the Holy Trinity, of uh, the church, in the scriptures. It is occasionally found in the Fathers, but it is rarely found in the Fathers. But as I told her, even within the Holy Trinity, there is taxis. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not interchangeable. So there is taxis even there, and that is an important and essential idea. Hmm? I'm, oh, sorry. Taxis means order. <laughs> is absolutely essential. It looks like taxi, but <laughs> taxis, but it isn't. Xi <laughs> is what you got there. Okay, so there is even within the Trinity order, and there certainly is within the body of Christ. Father Timothy, if you would read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 31. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to dumb idols. However, you have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are inspired by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body which we think less honorable, we invest with the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part, that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Thank you very much. So far, what we talked about in the Vasilion Ieratima is the body of Christ, but perceived as a whole, or at least that part of it which is visible in this world. By that, I'm not talking about the invisible church, I'm talking about the heavenly, and those in paradise, and even those who find themselves in Hades, but were originally baptized. In that, we do have ways in which we individually as priests and kings and we corporately as the body of the priests offer logikilatria, rational worship, and important ways, and we've reviewed those. But the body of Christ for its normal functioning, like any body, is divided into various, various functions, very specific functions. And like the like a body it has to have a headship of course i wouldn't say a head because the head is christ but the function of headship has to be exercised within the body and that is the job of Yerosini. priesthood understood in that term not in the term of ieratema that's the whole body but Again, the same word, unfortunately, is about the only one we're stuck with in English, but I hope you've un come to understand there is a very definite difference between them. Now, when we speak of priesthood, to whom do we refer? We are referring to bishops and priests only, bishops and presbyters. Deacons are not part of the Ierosini. Okay. If a deacon dies, a deacon is not buried with a special service. He can be buried in deacon's vestments, but the king is buried in his robes. Monks are buried in their robes, although they do have a special service. Uh, we are to be buried in a uh, white robe, you know, the chitona, 
and so forth. We're generally not. People within their various functions can be buried in that way. And that is what is going on. It's a way of honoring someone. But they do not have a special funeral. And when the fathers speak of priesthood, on the priesthood, for instance, by St. John, Chrysostom is primarily referring to the bishopric in, in, in his rebellion, his dialogue with, with Basil, is about the bishopric. It's not really about uh, the presbyterate. This is why, you know, in the, when the um, uh, liturgicon was done, we say for our father and archbishop uh, Philip, are uh, all the presbytery, don't say priesthood because that includes him. You pray first for the bishop, then you're praying for the college of the presbyters. If you say the priesthood, you pray, you're including the bishop and that is not what it is. And then for the diaconate in Christ. So you have uh, this hierarchy. Again, remember taxis. If you want to use presbyterium, okay. But you're not dealing with priesthood in either sense. You're dealing with the body of presbyters. So you understand. But the word priest refer, priesthood and priest refers to both. Now, I, it's very interesting that the early church, the vocabulary it chose in regard to its ordained uh, and official clergy. It did not choose to use, and this is often pointed out, but it, it balances out a bit. It's often pointed out that they did not choose to use the hieratic language and terms of the Old Testament. That was given to the whole body. Again, we're referring because of Christ. Whereas they chose organizational terms. Episcopos means simply overseer. Presbyteros does mean elder. It is to be distinguished from geron, or presbyter. It is to be distinguished from geron, G, well, it would be, let me write it here. Gamma, Epsilon, Rho, Omega, Ni. Geron or Geronda. If you're in Greek or Greece or around Greek, so now you hear it through Father Ephraim's influence, you hear people talking about Geronda. This means old man. That's all it means, or Gerondaki. It's a term of respect. Whereas presbyter refers more to seniority. And for instance, presvia. In Greece, that's a very important factor. When you're serving in churches with lots of people, presvia or your, your uh, dignity is, is an important thing so that taxis is preserved. And it's the, they're related. So it, it really refers much more. It's not uh, the same thing at all. Whereas the word geronda or geron is used very commonly in monastic circles, not just because he's old, but because he is mature within the monastic life. And therefore has lived longer or lived for a substantial amount of time according to the monastic rule. 
Very often the Geronda, most commonly, is the abbot of the monastery and very often elected not because he is a charismatic figure, but because he's been around longer. He knows the rule of prayer which is peculiar to the monastery. He knows how to impose the right uh, penances for uh, logismi because he himself has had over the years to do it. He himself has grown through the uh, revealing of his thoughts to a spiritual father. Therefore, he is capable, and it is based upon maturity. It's the equivalent of the, uh, the uh, Russian term staretz. I mean, a lot of people think that's a charismatic figure, you know, that walks off the earth, you know, it floats above the earth. No, it means a more an, a mature, a person who is mature within the monastic ascetic life is what it really means. And it has nothing to do with presbyters because many of them are not. Many of the abbots are not too. Okay, presbyter is a, a technical term of honor. It was used in the synagogue. It was used also for the kind of representatives in the Sanhedrin. And deacon means servant. I think that it was done because truly the church was very, very conscious of the fact that Christ was the fulfillment of the law, the temple, and the sacrifices, and focused on that and wanted to make that very clear. It understood it, and that was its main focus. However, I would not say that the priesthood, even within the scripture, did not have, and in the apostolic age, did not already have priestly connotations. Um, just one. Okay, uh, Father Timothy, again, you're on top. First Corinthians 9, 13 through 14. This is speaking particularly of the apostolic office, but remember, this devolves later, and I'll explain why, upon the priesthood. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay. So you'll notice the first mention of money deals with, or, or supplies, deals with us, not the building. And uh, but the, he chooses this Old Testament analogy of the priest's right to the sacrifices. So this is already, there's, there's the hint of, of priestly associations. And, and the fact that this, these offices of episcopos and presbyteros or presbyter bishop were being understood already in, in a sacrificial and uh, in a hieratic sense, and hieratic sense. Uh, also, in Romans 15, 15 through 16. Right. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, 
so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay. You have here priestly service. I think it's eurorgia, if I'm not mistaken. So we have already the use of really priestly language associated with this. Bring into this two other figures of the apostolic age who definitely were surrounded with priestly, though the scriptures do not refer to them that way, but they were surrounded with priestly glory. Namely, St. John the theologian in Ephesus, and particularly St. James in Jerusalem, who, as I've said, very strangely is associated with even going and praying in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, in the, in the temple. And how that could be, I don't know, especially written by a priest himself. So anyway, it's a, it's a very strange thing. And James held a very, very special place. So already, though, a, a kind of an administrative language is adopted to make it very clear that the true high priest is Christ, already this administrative these administrative offices are very much endowed with a priestly aura and with an hieratic aspect. And this is in the apostolic age. <clears throat> now very much we hear that presbyter bishops and that the bishop's office emerged later. And it is true that when speaking, for instance, of the See of Rome, uh, you know, they're, they're, especially in St. Ignatius's correspondence, he doesn't mention a bishop. So what is, what's going on? Is, is it true that bishops were something that the church created afterwards out of this group of presbyters? I don't quite think so. In the first place, uh, 1 Corinthians, which is written at the beginning of the second century, witnesses to a certain apostolic succession. But in addition, we have to look very carefully. Though in general it is spoken of presbyter bishops and the bishop's office was not so pronounced or was not so distinct, it doesn't mean that the, uh, the function was not already in existence. Within that context, in that language, there is always again a matter of taxis. There is a matter of order within that Presbyterial college. There would have been a dignity and there, it wouldn't have been, well, you take over today, Joe, and I'll take over tomorrow, Fred. And, you know, it wouldn't have been that at all. There would always have been order within that. There would always have been one who acted as the president. On the other hand, the emergence of what has been wrongly called the monarchical episcopate is witnessed from the first, particularly Jerusalem again with St. James, and St. James is a bishop. He's not an apostle in the sense of an apostle of a, miss a missionary, an itinerant ministry. His is a fixed set ministry. He is very clearly a bishop in the sense that the church derives its authenticity and the Presbyterial College derives its authenticity from him, not him, not this way, but this way. <laughs> And um, that's very important to be borne in mind. We also find that very same idea in St. John and about him in Ephesus, and we find it in St. Ignatius of Antioch as well. This all in toward the latter part of the
the first century and into the second century. However, as I said, in the, in the model where you have presbyter bishops and not so clearly defined bishops, you still have always a precedent, and that's not circulated office. And in the model of the so-called monarchical episcopate, the bishop is never, St. Ignatius, in spite of being identified, the bishop identified with God, the Father, nonetheless, he does not act separately from his presbyters. And St. James does not function as an autonomous figure. He always works together with the presbyters. Decisions are made together with the presbyters. It's not that you have the figure of it, this idea of monarchical episcopate is a very bad term because it's very, very inaccurate. Hmm? As I said, these are two models that uh, all of the details we don't know, but certainly uh, they are not antithetical to one another, not by any means. And we do have the idea that this is rooted in the apostles. One of the reasons that the bishop was not so overwhelming a figure in all instances was because of the presence of the apostles. Remember the nature of the early church. There was no New Testament. Their scriptures were the Old Testament, which had to be interpreted. You had in your midst, or in the midst of the church at least, those who were authentic eyewitnesses who knew how and who had received instruction in our Lord, by our Lord, as for the meaning of the Old Testament. Does he not dis instruct them, those from in, on the way to Emmaus and at the dinner at Emmaus? So they were the authoritative interpreters of and conveyors of the authentic tradition of the church. The church was built upon them and upon the faith which they proclaimed. So the ap apostles were the kind of bedrock of the church's faith. However, in the middle of the second century, or by that at the latest, most of the apostles and their immediate successors had or were dying off. The last kind of apostolic figure we have mentioned is St. Polycarp of Smyrna, the Bishop of Smyrna, who was a disciple, direct disciple of St. John. And that's in about 165, I believe. Excuse me? No, no, 165 is his death date, yeah. So he, uh, he was the last. They were all gone. He was a very old man. So he was the last. And as we see in St. Ignatius, without the personal witness of the apostles, the Gospels became one of the major pillars that supported the church. The Gospels being authentic witnesses to the faith which the apostles had proclaimed. The four Gospels, in, rather than the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, etc., 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 the four authentic Gospels conveyed the apostolic faith and were the one pillar of the church, the other leg of the body of Christ in this instance would have been the bishop. 
and his office becomes more important. And he becomes more prominent, not as an administrator, but as the essential guarantor of the continuity with the apostolic church and her faith, and as the authentic guarantee that the faith taught and lived within the church is the authentic apostolic faith that was and is the essential role of the bishop. Not primarily as liturgical celebrant, though he does that and he presides over the life of the whole community, not primarily as the uh, uh, administrator, as we'll see, that was the role generally given to bishop, to deacons, because it was below the office of a bishop or a priest. And uh, this is his essential ministry to this very day. Now, when we say that he was the guarantor of the apostolic faith, you know, we hear this term apostolic faith, what do we mean by the apostolic faith? Is it a generalized, you know, what the, some early Christian teachings? Is it to be only understood as, say, the Apostles' Creed or later the Nicene Creed? No, it's a much broader category, and I'll go through this. And it has to do with the uh, catechi uh, catechesis. Catechesis, I'm sorry. And with the catechumenate. And what we're talking about, uh, I'll go through an outline of it, but what is important is the sum total of knowledge which was conveyed to the catechumens. This is the bedrock. This is the milk of the mother, the church, with which the catechumens are fed and nurtured so that they can grow and increase. And it is no accident that the bishops, what, that for which the bishop is responsible is associated with baptism and our birth within. The church and her doctrine is founded on that and rooted in that. And these are not, they were in various parts of the church the system varied somewhat. Exactly what was taught when was not the same everywhere. There are differences between where, when it was taught. And the, but East and West, the sum total of catechetical knowledge was roughly the same. First of all, the person who was a hearer, namely a pagan or a heretic, by that I mean one whose baptism was not Trinitarian, who did not believe in the Trinity, etc., would come before he was allowed to be regularly involved. He would receive, kind of as an inquirer, he would receive a basic instruction in God that there is but one God, and also, in at least preliminary, uh, Christ would be, have been introduced to them. There would then be a prayer. Now, the prayer that was used was, in many cases, that which is found on the eighth day in our service books. If you read the prayer, it has absolutely no reference to the eighth day. And it's very clear that the purpose of the prayer is to admit to this first stage of the catechumenate. Hmm? Oh, yeah, I thought everybody knew that. The eighth day after birth. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And there is another form which is given in the, in the Apologia for uh, the admitting and the procedure for admitting a pagan. 
Uh, just as an aside, the children of Christians were admitted to this infant catechumenate by the prayer of the 40th day. It was only one. The women did not come to the church for 40 days, and that's very clearly attested very much as a universal custom in the, at the beginning of the, of the uh, third century, probably into the, certainly it was already well in place during the second century. However, there was no solemnization of it. She just came to church at the end of her 40 days, and normally bringing the child. And at that time, he was signed with the cross, and the one prayer is said, I believe it's the second in the set that we now have. He was there, or she was thereby admitted to the infant catechumenate, all right, and became a Christian, just as the person, the pagan or heretic, who later in life was made a Christian. Okay, he would come, and perhaps this would be for many years. He could come to the church, he could be there, he would go out with the catechumens right after the homily. Uh, again, even in the offices, even in Vespers and Orthros, he would be dismissed. I would bring your attention to the fact that he was not dismissed because of the Eucharist. He was dismissed because of prayers and the kiss of peace. Those could not be exchanged. The kiss of peace had a sacramental value, as did prayer. You could not pray with such a person. And you could never say the Our Father outside the church, which was why, in most cases, in the Latin rite, it would be Our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because it couldn't be heard by the catechumens and could not be uttered by them because they, he wasn't their father. He was their creator. Okay, that's very important to remember. Okay, during this time, this could be a long period of time, and there doesn't seem to have been any formal instruction that was set out. Okay, sometimes it could be many, many years. Uh, other times, uh, you know, a year, three years, seems to have been pretty common, that they'd frequent the assembly to a point and then withdraw. There were some, as in Rome, there were kind of lay teachers of whom St. Maximus or St. Uh, Saint, uh, Justin Martyr was one who kind of set up shop and have their own little schools. It appears that the catechetical school in Alexandria was much the same, only it was an official school of the Church of Alexandria, rather an unofficial thing. This was not so very different in St. Justin's case than some of the Stoic philosophers and various philosophers. Of course, the content was different, but the form and, and procedure was much the same. And people could go and, and have some instruction in the Christian faith. However, the next phase, phase two, of the catechumenate was when the catechumen went to being the next phase of being and photosomenos. Uh, uh, now, before this, just a moment. There is in the Apostolic Constitutions a long litany for the possessed, energumeni. The implication being, and you hear commentaries about this, obviously the, the dramatic ceremony of the, of the um, exorcism played a large role in everything. 
I don't think this had anything to do with people who were possessed. And if you read the prayer you'll, and the prayers, you'll find out that he probably referred to apostate catechumens, those who strayed. And they would be dismissed as a special category before they would be readmitted to the catechumenate. Because your catechumenate, you were expected to lead at least a moral life. And of whom, who was perhaps the most famous strayed uh, catechumen? St. Augustine, yeah. <laughs> the Manichaean. So uh, this, these were the energumeni, the, uh, the possessed ones. There is such a thing as possession, but that wasn't an everyday ceremony in the church, and it isn't today. Okay. Um, now, in Lent, there would be the ceremony of the giving of the cross and admitting into this uh, category of fortezomenos, or those to be enlightened. If you remember, in the latter part of Lent, we have this special litany which is added to the pre-sanctified liturgy. And actually, there were corresponding prayers and litanies and dismissals at the end of Vespers and Orthros and all other services, because even at those, no catechumen could be there. They could listen to the Psalms and stuff, but they couldn't be there for any praying at all. OK, the, the uh, Fotosomini would have been introduced into this by a presentation. This would be, it was called a narratio, which was basically a revela uh, presenting to them of the salvation history from beginning at creation through the Old Testament leading up to Christ. St. Augustine's pattern is a little different in that he extends it leading up to contemporary life in the church. But normally, this was the salvation history up to Christ. And you'll find this in several places uh, that are, are, if you know, if you've ever heard of the teaching of St. Gregory, which is a, was a catechesis in the Armenian church, a very early one, uh, that sort of thing contains this. They were also at this introduction, or around that time, given another one which is known as exhortatio, which is a moral exhortation, most commonly based upon the two ways. And examples of this can be found in the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Clementine literature, a very diverse and confusing set of literature. Or it's also found in part in the Shepherd of Hermas and in various other sources, uh, even as late as uh, Shenouda of Atrape is about the last one I know of it's using this two-way pattern. But this was uh, the normal way that was used to reveal to them the uh, basis of the moral life. This is attested at the very beginning of the Christian church's existence. And St. Paul, though it was probably not laid out in this way, is al also reflecting very similar sorts of things even in the various, very earliest phases of the church. Then began intensive instruction every day, not Wednesday and Friday, every day. And this was undertaken by the clergy. In many areas, it was undertaken by the presbyters, 
specifically. It was supervised by the bishops. Oh, incidentally, before they could become photosomony, their godparents had to attest, yes, he has straightened out and he's not doing that anymore and he gave up the idol-making shop and she's not an actress anymore and things like that before they could be admitted into this. So um, the clergy take charge here. Now in a number of church orders, particularly in the West, you have exorcists. The exorcists were not, again, people running around looking for possessed people to, to uh, expel the demons. The exorcists were the teachers. They were the catechists. However, at the conclusion of the catechesis, they would say the prayers of exorcism that were appropriate, that exist in both East and West. The East did not have this, at least the Byzantine world and its spiritual hegemony. It was rather entrusted to presbyters and to deacons. St. John Chrysostom was also involved in this. That this was a period of moral instruction and also a period of detailed review of the Old Testament topology. The moral instruction was based largely upon Old Testament material, namely the wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs, etc., was kind of the foundation that was given at that time. Is it not read during uh, our own pre-sanctified liturgies during that? However, the kind of central factor in this, the kind of kernel of the whole instruction, was the Holiness Code in Leviticus 20, which is those sins unto death that I've spoken to you about before. St. Augustine diverged from this pattern, though he wasn't actually rejecting it, but he used a somewhat different pattern in that he used as his central core the Ten Commandments, and that's how it got in everybody's catechism in the West. <clears throat> this was not an emphasis which was found in the East. Now, the, there was then a detailed Old Testament topology. Again, we have elements of this that are found. Uh, these are known as testimonia. There were collections that were made. This um, of the apostolic preaching by um, St. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, Epidixis. I can't remember what, it, what's the, what the English title is. It's available through St. Vladimir's. Uh, that is, uh, it was a, book which, a work which was preserved actually only in Armenian. Uh, and it is basically a collection of testimonia that would have been used, these Old Testament topologies. You find them in the scriptures, and these were used, and in some ways, uh, they were at least a part in the building of the Gospels, and of the, uh, were used and drawn upon by the New Testament writers. There were a number of these compilations of testimony that were common themes, commonly used. Okay, this is the... Um, Old Testament exegesis. They were given the creed, generally really kind of at the beginning of this. And the very last phase of this instruction was, this is all as photosomony. Remember, every day, three hours a day, you got the creed. Now, these were local creeds. 
of which the received creed of Constantinople 381, not the Nicene, is the one that we, we are now using. There are variants. The Armenian church still uses a Niceanized version of an early creed. It's longer than ours. The Ap Apostles' Creed is one of these local creeds as well. It was only used in the West. So this creed would have been given. Some of them were very simple. Some of them were very much longer than our received uh, creed that we have now. And it was the, it had to be memorized. It couldn't be written down. It had to be memorized from start to finish. They were forbidden to write it down. And this would be the basis of the exposition of the content of the Christian faith, of the basics of the Christian faith. Also involved with that was the Our Father. Now, this was taught at different places. Some uh, systems taught it at the end of the pre-baptismal catechesis. Some of them taught it after the baptism. That depended on the area. As I said, the, the sequence in which some of these things were done varied from place to place. The content really ultimately didn't. Then there would also be the baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist, normally the explanation of at least details and points of the divine liturgy. In, Saint John, in Jerusalem, this was given after the baptism. In uh, Theodore Mopsuestia, it's given prior to the baptism. So in different places, it was given at different times. However, it was given. The, uh, and normally, in every instance, there was the baptisms would normally occur, and this great complex, which shaped the entire liturgical year and was certainly the most important factor in shaping it, was uh, reached its climax on Holy Saturday in the late afternoon or early evening. Some books say the first hour of the night, which we've got 7 o'clock, it would begin. And during that time, there would be the baptisms, of course, in the baptistry and the chrismation, which I'm not going to go into right now. After that, in the Eucharist, of course, after that, they, the catechumens would, in, in the Byzantine system, they were not anointed on the body. They were anointed with the chrism only on the face. It's said in all the documents, it's said in the, those of the ecumenical council, the forehead, the eyes, the nose, the ears and the lips, but not on the body. And if you notice, the chrismation occurs before the vesting. So, uh, or after the vesting, I'm sorry. So they would have been vested first in white robes. That's attested very early. You find it in, as I mentioned, in the uh, Testament of Levi, which is a Christian reworking of a Jewish apocalyptic work of the first century. So this importance of the, um, of the vesting, of the new vesture, was very, very significant. Then they would have been anointed and the excess wiped off, but they would not be allowed to bathe, to wash their face for, three day, for, for eight days, for a week. They would have remained in the church complex. In one way, there were, the church complex wasn't just the church building, it was rather large. 
they would also during that time be forbidden and are forbidden the consumption of meat. They're babies, they're neophytes, newly born, and therefore they can't eat meat yet. So whatever had to be done, whether it was instruction in the Our Father, whether it was instruction in the mysteries of baptism, chrismation, Eucharist, whatever it was in that particular church, there, was a there were daily celebrations of the liturgy at which they received and they uh, also were specially dressed. They retained the white robe throughout that time. At the end of that time, they returned, or rather they came into the baptistry on the eighth day, and in the baptistry, then their faces were washed. Their clothes, were, the white robes were removed, and they were returned to or ordinary dress and went about their Christian life. Just as a little aside, the cutting of the hair had nothing to do with it. The cut, there are several, in the Ephologia, there are several prayers for the cutting of hair, and they were associated with the first cutting of a child's hair, just as there are prayers for the blessing of the first cutting of a man's beard. So they, it, it kind of has become coalesced, but it had nothing, and people make the hand is laid on, and therefore that's the orthodox chrismation. No, it had nothing to do. It was not even done, even on the rites of the eighth day. Now, I give you this overview for a reason. The sum total of that knowledge, of that lore and information that was associated with the catechumenate, which was the foundation of all Christian knowledge and development thereafter, is what is meant by the apostolic faith. The seal of it, which was the pride of every church and upon which communion with other churches was based was the creed of that church. And after Nicaea, it was either the local one was retained in a Nicaeanized form, or it was adopted first Nicaea, and then after the Council of Chalcedon, uh, the creed of uh, Constantinople, which we now use and which is universally accepted. Okay, I, go, I understand we're going to break now, but I wanted to give you that. That is the sum total of the apostolic faith of the church for which the bishop is guarantor. Did someone? Yes. Yeah, I, I was hoping you'd say something about it, which you didn't, so it may not even apply here. Was any ascetical teaching or practice involved with the catechumens at the beginning? Fasting. Fasting. That's what, so they were... Because they had to deal with passions and all to get to the point where they could even enter, you know, the church. Well, no, no, fasting was not so much in this case a matter of ascetic fasting. Fasting in this case was a preparation for approach to the holy. Okay, okay that's what we're dealing with. But that was incorporated in this time? Yes. Okay. Because we're really not dealing with repentance in the same sense we would be after baptism, mm -hmm. remember? So it was a necessary, uh, uh, necessary for the approach to the holy. My main focus here has been upon the content of the faith which every church was responsible for and which he today is responsible for here. Thank you. And he's going to tell you after the break and give you and read to you what he now, the confessions he had to make witnessing to the content of this faith as it's now been kind of condensed. Thank you. I just wanted to impress upon you the sum total of this knowledge. What we're dealing with here is, of course, the introduction to, to 
basic introduction, God and the Trinity. I don't mean to distinguish those, but you know what I mean, I hope. Uh, then uh, thereafter, a, a both a moral and uh, a kind of salvation history, an overview of God's interaction with the world, they were acquainted. There would have been a slight difference whether this was done with Jews or Gentiles. Obviously, you didn't have to introduce God, but there needed to be more emphasis upon the Trinitarian aspect there, whereas when dealing with Gentiles, you had to tell them that there's only one up there. <laughs> so uh, it, there would have been slightly different uh, approaches, but still the same thing. The two ways would have been used as, as a kind of guide to your moral conduct. You would definitely have been told and know very well what were the sins unto death and you would have been exposed to, the, in broad terms, you would have been exposed, well, really quite extensively. Remember, three hours a day, uh, every day, for about 20 days, at least half of that, at least 10 hours, at least 30 hours of intensive um, teaching of the um, typology, Old Testament typology, how it was led up to Christ in at least an equal amount of time, would have been dealt and, and devoted to an exposition of the basics and fundamentals of the faith. In addition, you would have under, been informed very much as to the content of uh, and the meaning of the baptismal ceremonies, not only their outward form, but really what they were and what happened to you. Now, another thing, and the Our Father, too. Now, another thing that is very important to remember is that others could have attended. The hearers could not. But if you were a baptized Christian, this was kind of like an ongoing uh, religious education class. You could sit in on it. And you could be involved years later, 20 years later. Well, I think I need to polish up a little bit. So you could drop in and participate in any or all of these. So it was a kind of regular built-in religious education system. I personally believe that this needs to be looked at very much more seriously. The sum total, not necessarily the method, when we evaluate what we are accomplishing by our religious education curricula. That's quite a substantial amount. And perhaps to be evaluated if we ever prepare a kind of course to be used for the instruction of those who are converting to the faith. So that's a recommendation. Well, he's responsible for it, so we'll tell it to him. Also, <laughs> also, it should be men uh, mentioned the bishop did not <clears throat> the bishop did not necessarily enter in at every stage. At the major transition stages he did, and at the conclusion, which in the West was on Holy Thursday and in the East was on Good Friday, he gave the final catechesis, the final catechetical address prior to baptism. And it's there that the ceremonies of renunciation and adherence to Christ occurred, not at the, not at the time of the baptism. They occurred on Holy, Holy uh, Good Friday. So he exercised his position of oversight. These were not necessarily written out in detail and read off as lectures, but there were existing outlines 
collections of testimonia. The two ways were being circulated in various churches and so forth, in slight variance, but nonetheless with a great deal of harmony. So that although we're not having, you know, a, a book with it all in, and every church didn't, we do know that there were uh, outlines of how this was to be done, and the catechist would then be, or priest or deacon, whoever was doing it, would then work within that outline, expanding or contrast or, or shrinking, whatever, according to the needs of his audience. And normally there would be several involved. They wouldn't, you wouldn't have to do it every day. You know, this would be, and again, this was centralized. This was more around the cathedral. There weren't any such things as parish churches as we have today. They didn't exist in antiquity. Um, time period-wise, hmm? what time period are you describing when you describe it? The catechumenate existed. Well, it's said that St. Vladimir even was, went through a similar catechumenate. So we're talking at least, uh, as far as very organized and structured in this way, you're talking certainly well organized in the fourth century, probably as this very structured uh, phenomenon. We're talking, I would say, uh, mid to the end of the third, mid beginning to the end of the third century. Well, for us, that's a point of reference, and we have we have their detailed information. It wasn't only done there, and it was done universally in East or West. It would be true elsewhere where there was a bishop. Yes, East or West. Of course, of course, in North Africa, that almost literally meant one under every date palm because every little village had one. But that was unique to North Africa, by the way. Uh, so, uh, it, but this sort of thing, we do have evidence in, in Hebrews that there was, Paul gives a, a, basically a summary of the kind of catechesis which he had received. However, it was not necessarily as organized at that time in that you didn't necessarily have a clear establishment of Pascha as a focus. It's debated whether even Pascha was certainly not the unique time for baptism. And in some cases, it's debated whether the, the whole problem uh, with uh, Victor of Rome was not really the introduction of a new feast, of a fixed Paschal feast, as uh, kind of and combined with the exist, long existing Christian Sunday. We don't, it's not time to get into that. <laughs> But with the establishment of the feast, and definitely from that time on, and the importance of the, of the Easter question, determined that this was the time preeminently for baptisms. The only little thing I would mention, that we have the evidence that baptisms were done at Pentecost and at a few other times, namely at uh, 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 Epiphany, and also on uh, Lazarus Saturday, and sometimes on, Good Friday, on uh, Palm Sunday as well. Uh, this was because of the overflow, and it was also because of where, if a woman had her menses at, the, at Pascha, she couldn't be baptized. She would have gone through the catechumenate, but she had to wait until a convenient time when she could be baptized. Did you have a question? Yeah, well, yeah, precisely. But the catechesis itself was two months, three months, a year. 
No, the, the detailed uh, catechesis was actually during Lent. During Lent. But you would have been attending perhaps for two or three years, maybe many, many years before that. You would have heard the homilies and so forth. But this very intensive instruction and everything was during Lent. And that was just about universal. There are a few uh, anomalies in a number of places. Some of them did it 40 days. Uh, in e uh, um, Egypt, it seems to have been in Alexandria before St. Athanasius, a custom to do it 40 days after Epiphany, whenever that happened to fall. But that's a whole other. Yes? question. Once again, it comes back to this time period that I'm still confused over. Um, by the 7th or 8th century, who's enrolling as catechism? There were still people, for one thing, the empire was still expanding. There were always people converting. <coughs> and those who were being... Germanic? No. It, yes, precisely, Father. There were. There were... Uh, there, actually quite a few as mercenaries. There were always comings and goings. The Alans, one of the Alan princesses would be. We have two, we have adult converts who are coming into the church and going through catechesis. We also, I, know, I mean, from what I understand, I, I, my, my time frame is confusing because it's back so long. Um, but you also have infant baptism. Not baby baptism. But no, child baptism. They're not going through the catechesis with the adults at the age of no, six. No, although I don't know how much they would have probably been exposed to some of it, but I'm not sure exactly how. But as I said, it's also an ongoing thing. You know, you can bring your child uh, later when he's uh, capable of understanding and have him go through it at least in segments. Okay, well, you. No, we don't. No. No, nothing, nothing is mentioned there. But it is, it is clear, for instance, that a lot of studies have been done in regard to the millennium in Russia. When was the Rus converted and when, was, uh, when were they baptized? And particularly St. Vladimir himself. And people said, well, surely this cat structured catechumen could not have existed that long. But all research has shown, indeed, it did. And he went through a very similar catechesis himself. And it was still in force. In other words, through the first millennium, in all the liturgical books in, that were uh, printed up until like the, uh, the Latin invasion, 1204, all of them, and afterwards many times, give all of the details. It said child baptism, but not baby baptism. <laughs> between, most of the time it was between four to about six or seven years old that children were being baptized. They were already Christian, however, on the 40th day, sealed and under the protection of Christ and of his church, in the road, sealed with the cross, not with the chrism. They were already on the road to baptism. Okay? All right. Now, I wanted to bring out that this is was and is the essential office of the bishop. He is responsible to see that his church is faithful to this deposit of the apostolic faith. And to this day, before a bishop can be ordained,
he must read confessions, which is, if I'm not mistaken, Sedna, you have to write out, do you not? So that he is attesting to the faith of his church and that he is in accordance with the apostolic faith. Would you mind reading to us those three confessions? Oh, I'm sorry. It's the third prayer in the service for the 40 days, which is the authentic early prayer. Okay. Sina, here. You need this. Next, uh, confession of faith, or profession of faith. Um, how many of you were at either my consecration or another Episcopal consecration? So, you know, this is said before the whole congregation. Um, with the, the consecrating bishops sitting there on the solea, uh, and I stand, or the, the candidate for, for consecration stands between his two sponsors um, and makes these professions. I don't know. What's the name for them in Greek? I don't know. We'll find out. I'll look it up. Before you start that, this was the first time in my life that ever, I ever got a missive from an Orthodox bishop, and this was it. He sent this to me right oh, after... Oh, I remember that, yeah, after Rose Hill. I'll never forget it. Well, because when people ask, sort of like, what really do we believe? You know, the, everybody says the Nicene, not everybody, but others say the Nicene Creed, but this is a very uh, detailed exposition on that. Anyway, it begins uh, with one of the sponsors telling the congregation you know, to attend, let us attend, and then the candidate announces, I, Basil, by the mercy of God, elected for the Holy See of Entry, have written with my own hand that I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and descended into heaven, and sits at the right of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. It's the Son of God whose kingdom shall have no end, not the dead whose kingdom or have no end, those are semicolons, okay? So it's the only begotten Son of God, semicolon, whose kingdom shall have no end. Uh, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. I accept the, the decisions of the seven holy and ecumenical councils, which were convened for the protection and safeguarding of all the orthodox dogmas of the Church. I confess, accept, and defend all of the canons which have been promulgated and agreed upon, and every discipline which the Holy Fathers have prescribed in various places and times. I accept all they have accepted, and I reject all they have rejected. I commit myself to the preservation of the peace of the Church for the remainder of my life. I will never teach... in and for the remainder of my life I will never teach anything which in any way is contrary to the teachings of the Church, but will rightly divide the word of truth to the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence, and undivided, the one and only true God, and for the salvation of the faithful. 
The second confession, I believe in one God divided in three persons, by which I mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By divided, I mean in regard to persons, but undivided in regard to essence. Therefore, he is the one Trinity himself and the one himself, one according to essence and nature and existence, Trinity according to individual properties and name because one is called Father, the other Son, and the other Holy Spirit. The Father is unbegotten and unoriginate, for nothing is previous to him. He was and always is God. He is unoriginate. He did not receive his existence from anyone outside himself. I then believe that the Father is the cause of the Son and the Spirit. He is the cause of the Son by begetting, and the cause of the Holy Spirit by generation, there being no separation or change among them except the distinction of persons, and that the Father begets the Son and generates the Holy Spirit. The Son then is begotten solely by the Father alone, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. I believe in one beginning, and I know the Father as the one cause of the Son and the Spirit. And I say that the Son is the beginning, surpassing the ages and limitless, not as if he were the beginning of creation, or its senior as the first created, God forbid. For this is the error of the wicked belief of the followers of Arius. For that condemned man was blaspheming, saying that the Son and the Holy Spirit were creations. But I say that the Son is pre-eternally begotten from the one who is unoriginate, for there could never be two beginnings. The Holy Spirit shares with the Son in beginning, for both the Son and the Holy Spirit have their existence together with the Father, the Son by begetting and the Holy Spirit by procession, as I have previously said. For the Father does not separate himself from the Son, neither does the Son from the Spirit, nor does the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. But the Father is fully in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son is fully in the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is fully in the Father and the Son because they are united in distinction and distinct in unity. I then confess that the Word of God, co-eternal with the Father beyond time, who is neither contained nor confined, descended to our nature and took from the pure virginal blood, the blood of the only all-blameless and immaculate virgin, all fallen wretched humanity in order to grant the whole world salvation and grace according to his compassion. By this, the unity of the two natures was accomplished in hypostatic union, and not as if the babe in the womb were incrementally perfected, little by little, neither as if the two united natures were united with confusion, mingling, or mixture, nor as if the word came after the birth, for this would mean that the union was supplementary, as says the God-rejected and Judaic-minded Nestorius and not as if he were without mind and soul, as says Apollinarius, who himself is mindless, because he is mocked, saying that divinity is sufficient for reason, sufficient without reason. But I confess that he himself is perfect God and perfect man. That is to say that he is both man and the word of God, man with a rational and minded soul. After the union, he retains all the glorious divinity proper to his nature, and the characteristics of neither his divinity nor his humanity were changed as a result of the perfect union with the word. He is himself one hypostasis of two natures and two wills, preserving what is of him and what is in him, the self-same Jesus Christ our God. He has two wills, natural, not rational. I further say that he who is God suffered, but in the flesh, 
but I do not ever say that in divinity he can suffer or suffer in the flesh. Again, I confess that he took upon himself all our weaknesses which accompany our nature except sin, such as hunger, thirst, fatigue, tears, and the like. Those were active in him, though not determinately as in us, but through the obedience of his human will to his divine will. For he willed and he hungered. He willed and he thirsted. He willed and he was fatigued. He willed and he died. He died accepting death for our sake without his divinity suffering. For he who takes away the sin of the world was not subject to death, but he accepted death to save us all from the devouring hand of death and by his blood to offer us to his Father. While death encountered human flesh, it was shattered by divine power, and thereby the souls of all the righteous, chained from the ages, were snatched away. Then after his resurrection from the dead and his appearance to his disciples for forty days upon earth, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right of the Father. Now by saying the right of the Father, I do not mean a spatial location, but by the right of God the Father, I mean his unoriginate and pre-eternal glory, the glory which was the Son's before the Incarnation and which is his after the Incarnation. His sacred body, together with his divinity, is accorded holy worship without appending the Holy Trinity. God forbid, for the Trinity remains Trinity after the union of the only begotten, whose holy body is unseparated and remains with him now and forever. And he will come with it to judge the living and the dead with it, his body. And he will come with it to judge the living and the dead, both righteous and sinners. He will reward the righteous according to their virtuous deeds with the kingdom of heaven for their labors here. But the sinners will be punished with eternal punishment in the unending fire of Gehenna, from which suffering we all hope to be delivered and receive the incorruptible good things promised by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And then the third and final confession of faith. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. We're talking now about the one God, right? Who is unoriginate, the Father, unbegotten and without cause, the natural beginning and cause of the Son and the Spirit. And I believe in his only begotten Son, begotten of him, the Father, without flux and beyond time, who is of one essence with him, the Father, and by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father himself, who is glorified together with him, who is equal in eternity and throne, who is of one essence and one glory with him, and who is the author of creation. I believe that the only begotten word, one of the same supersubstantial and life-giving trinity, came down from heaven for us men and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit for our salvation and from the Virgin Mary became man. I mean, he became perfect man while remaining God, in no wise altering or changing anything of the divine essence by his participation in the flesh. But he took humanity without alteration, and therein suffered the passion and crucifixion, being free from every suffering according to his divine nature. And on the third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right of God the Father. And I also believe what the one Catholic and Apostolic Church has transmitted and defined concerning God and the things of God. I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and of the life, the, the life of the age to come. And I also confess the one hypostasis of the incarnate word. I believe and I preach that Christ, after the incarnation, is one in two natures and two wills, retaining those things which were in him and from him. 
and I believe in two wills, for each nature retains its own personal will and its own personal energy. And I reverence but do not worship the holy and venerable icons, the image of Christ himself and of the all-pure Mother of God and of all the saints, the veneration shown to them being offered to the prototypes. But those who believe contrary-wise I reject as people of strange opinion. I anathematize Arius and his followers and those who share with him in his wicked belief. I anathematize Macedonius and his followers who are called fighters against the spirit. I also anathematize Nestorius and all propounders of heresies. And I reject and anathematize all who are like-minded. I publicly proclaim in a great voice, <clears throat> each and every heretic is anathema, all heretics are anathema. But I confess and preach that Our Lady, Mary the Theotokos, has truly and properly given birth in the flesh to one of the Trinity, even Christ our God. May she be my helper, my shelter, and my strength all the days of my life. Amen. I, by the base by the mercy of God, elected for the Holy See of Enfi, have signed this with my own hand. And then only then do they say, command, command, command. I couldn't walk away with it. I dragged the whole thing with me. So as we see very much, the bishop's office was and is rooted in the apostolic faith, and that is not a faith in vague terms. And it is not, as some have said, who sometimes have taught in even Orthodox schools, that the faith, it can be summarized as Jesus is Lord, and whoever confesses that has confessed the apostolic faith. As you see, it's a great deal more than that, and that is the essence of the bishop's office. Can I just make one little footnote? That written, handwritten, hand-signed copy of the profession um, was given to the representative of his beatitude. If it had been like Bishop Dimitri, would have presented straight to the attic within Damascus. I presented mine to Metropolitan Elias from Beirut, who was here as the delegate of the Patriarch. But we took that back to the Patriarchate, so all of those are in the archives, and they checked it. Because in my handwritten, when I left one thing out, and the Patriarch told the Metropolitan, and I had to rewrite the whole handwritten. I read from a prepared text, but the handwritten one, I had left something out, and I had to redo the whole thing. So you see what our faith is founded on, and he is one of the essential pillars. That is, and furthermore, that faith and the bishop's custodianship of it is intimately linked with how you and I should have or have become part of the body of Christ, part of the Vasilion Hieratima. No, we've talked about that. I'm not sure of this specific one. There are slight variant. The Russians have a slight variant. Is that not so, Sena? Third, uh, World War II have added um, the papacy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that they anathematize. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've made inquiry. Can't imagine why. Yeah, I've made inquiry like <laughs> Dr. Uh, Myra, Dr. Paul Myra, uh, with our own Metropolitan Constantine Papastafano, who's sort of <clears throat> no one's really been able to tell me like where this comes from. There are certain elements that are very familiar sounding if you 
at this book. Now, Father Alexander Galitzin's uh, translation of the Tomos of the Holy Mountain uh, regarding Calamism. Uh, there sounds like some very familiar passages. Well, I would assume that it came after that time. Well, you can just put that see that it's dealing with the Seven Ecumenical Council issue. It's post Seventh Ecumenical Council. Oh, oh certainly, yes. I, I, yeah. I thought I heard uh, sort of echoes of the Athanasian Creed or the language uh, sounds like. Well, the only thing I would say on that, uh, you know, when you're talking about both the so-called three ecumenical creeds, is they aren't ecumenical. Uh, by that I mean, at Florence, it was assumed by the Latins that the, everyone accepted the Apostles' Creed. The Eastern Church says, we know no such creed, <laughs> and nor did they know uh, the Athanasian, and it wasn't necessarily that they were opposed to them, this was not a standard of faith with which they were at all familiar. So, in other words, these creeds are not just people who sat down and thought, what are the basics of the faith? It is intimately linked with our ontological change into becoming the body of Christ and priests and kings. So this is very, very important. Very often we see bishops as administrators, uh, very uh, pretty liturgical dolls, or uh, sometimes pains, but <laughs> we don't really see the essence of their office, that in which it is rooted.